0: Hey guys, Noah here. First off, thanks for listening to the show. You make this much more fun and interesting. If you are liking the show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or the app of your choice. And when you have a second, please leave us a review. It helps others know how great you think the show is. Also, consider supporting the show financially by going over to patreon.com slash codestory. For five to ten bucks a month you would be making a huge difference. For this week and for the holidays, we are doing a throwback episode. Back to our very first interview with Ryland Barnes, the original founder and CTO of ShopSavvy. In fact, recently, ShopSavvy has been rebuilt and re-released. Download the app or visit the website at shopsavvy.com to be able to scan anything to get notified when the price drops. It now includes alerts. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Mostly I like to solve problems backwards. but This might be me being contrarian. The first time I tried to get barcode scanning off the ground, it, it failed miserably. When 2008 came around, that's when smartphones were actually a thing. I grabbed Android Beta SDK and tried to get an app built that could do barcode scanning and price comparison. If your goal is to build a team, you need team players. One thing to look for when when building your team is don't tolerate assholes. Uh, It was a happy accident for the most part. I just try enough to uh, win sometimes, and uh, that's kind of of the playbook.
0: This is Code Story, bringing you in-depth interviews with Tech Visionaries digging into critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm Noah Lebhart, and on today's episode, how in 2006, Rylan Barnes made a way to read barcodes on your phone and accidentally changed the way you shop. All this and more on Code Story. For some builders, there's a moment where creativity is catalyzed, for others it starts much earlier. Ryland Barnes has been working with technology since childhood starting out by simply programming his Legos to move, and all the way through college building early marketplaces for college students to trade textbooks, and building automated chess boards so that invisible robots could play chess against each other. When he started creating a solution for mobile phone barcode scanning, He had no idea the doors it would open, and eventually lead to the formation of his most successful product, venture, and exit, called Shop Savvy. So, I think everyone wants to know, how you started Shop Savvy? Uh, It was a happy accident, for the most
1: part. So, um, at the time, this was 2008, uh, I was really into graphics processing and the the mobile space and the mobile space back in early 2008 was still your flip phone. But, uh, I, I really liked building whatever you could build on flip phones back then. And so I had an idea. It was, it was, uh, kind of birthed out of textbook trader and the price comparison stuff I did. I thought it would be you know, a great application of price comparison would be kicking that off with scanning barcodes. So I, what I tried to do was get barcode scanning working on a flip phone back in 2005 actually <laughs> turns out that was uh, bad timing it just wasn't <laughs> Timing is everything it really is and the first time I tried to get barcode scanning uh, off the ground it, it failed miserably, but when 2008 came around that's when smartphones were actually a thing um, you couldn't you couldn't actually build stuff for smartphones yet, but the Android Beta SDK had, was just announced, and so, uh, and and Apple wasn't really done with theirs yet. So I grabbed the, uh, grabbed Android Beta SDK, and uh, tried to get uh, an app built that could do uh, barcode scanning and price comparison, and that is, that's how it was kicked off.
0: So with the with the Android Beta SDK, that's not something that was. Available to the world, right? That was something available to a smaller group of developers.
1: It, it was available to the world. Actually, it's just no one cared. <laughs> <laughs> no one, no one really. Um, gosh, it, it would be fun to show screenshots of what it looked like back then. I believe it, I remember. <laughs> it was. Um, it was well, and if you look at the origins of Android 2, it's super interesting. Like what it was originally intended for, like the. Very early origins of Android, I believe, was meant to be used on other devices like digital cameras, and so the the interface was very very primitive. You know, D-pad navigation, and maybe there was a keyboard, and there it was not very smartphone esque. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was it was quite different. Android has done a wonderful job of evolving into a, a very rich. Smartphone UI these days, uh, But that was a that was a long journey. They they came from a, a very humble place, actually. The way that Android was initially set up was meant to be able to run on anything. I used to joke that um, Android was uh, built to run on anything you could imagine, including your toaster. It it, it kind of uh, stumbled into smartphones, uh, from what I gather. Um, but so yeah, it was available to everybody, mm. but just most people didn't care. Okay, because uh, they they just didn't know what smartphones could do yet.
0: So by doing that, you entered into a certain some challenge, right? Some sort of uh, competition for who could build the the most awesomest thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So Google
1: was trying to promote <clears throat> Android. So uh, Google know to have a successful platform, they were going to need developers on it. So they actually uh, created this competition uh, that where to see who could actually build the best app for Android. I figured, I, I tried that same idea from 2005, took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again on this new tech and it, it worked fantastic. What what I did was I I, I was actually at the time working at a, another startup that was in the event ticketing space. Uh, my, my brother and I actually both worked there together, which was awesome, and I took a week off of work so that I could actually learn the Android SDK, (laughs) read everything that would, all the documentation that was published at the time, cover to cover. So I knew it well. And, and then I spent the next six months moonlighting to build the, this app. At the time it was called Go-Kart. Uh, not that that was a, a good name or anything. It's an awesome name. Certainly, certainly too clever by half. It was supposed to be your shopping cart on the go. But uh, <laughs> the, what, it, what that was was um, it was an extension of the old textbook trader stuff, with, so I, I had experience building a price comparison search engine. And if I could actually use the camera in the smartphone to scan a barcode, that it would be a great way to kick off that process. You wouldn't have to spend time f- fumbling around typing on your keyboard right And, um, and so that worked well. So um, so I entered it in, in, I entered it into the competition. And ended up winning first prize, which was excellent. Winning that competition ended up getting the application a whole lot of attention. Mm. Because uh, now suddenly OEMs started getting interested in mm-hmm. um, what can showcase their hardware. Sure. And carriers started getting interested in what can help them sell phones. They started talking with a lot of the winners of the uh, competition about cross promotions about actually as, as using the apps to promote the phone. Mm. And so fortunately for me, the T-Mobile wanted to actually use my application to um, help promote the original Android phone, the G1. That's really cool. Uh, the funny story about that though, is that they didn't like the name.
0: <laughs> they didn't like go-kart.
1: They did not like go-kart. <laughs> okay. they, they actually said that, um, yeah, we, we've, we've chosen to go with you but you're going to have to use the
0: name Shop Savvy. Ah, so T-Mobile is the one that, that came up with Shop Savvy or forced their hand on yep. Shop Savvy.
1: T-Mobile is the one that came up with the name. It was, it, was, it was too good to pass up. Plus, Go-Kart wasn't really the best name anyway. So <laughs> so Shop Savvy it was.
0: So, so when you won this competition, was it just you, you got some funding from this competition too, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was, a, there was a prize money for, for winning the competition.
0: And with and, that, you were able to kind of build a team and continue working on it? Or what would you do with that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, uh, I mean, I went f- without a salary for the next three years. So that's, that's where that went.
0: The truth of startups.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so three years after that happened, you know, trying to get this company off the ground, we ended up raising a, a series A from, um, some investors. One of them was Eduardo Saverin, the Facebook co-founder. Oh, that's amazing. At, and, uh good times. Yeah, but we uh, skipped a little part of the story too, though. There, there's, a, there's a fun part about bringing uh, ShopSavvy to the iPhone, though. Yeah, so the iPhone was uh, more challenging than Android, partly because while the SDK did come out much later than Android, Apple still didn't allow camera access uh, until a couple versions later. Wow, okay. And so... Um, you could fake it a little bit by actually tapping into some private APIs, but Apple would kick you out of their store if you did those shenanigans we We had to wait uh, what felt like forever to actually get shopusepi onto the iPhone. Um but that that wasn't the end of of the the challenge on iPhone. The first couple generations of iPhones had a fixed focus lens in their camera. So on Android, there was an autofocus camera, and you had that lens cycling back and forth to you know, focus in on whatever distance the actual object is sure. so you could get that camera six inches away from the barcode and still be able, um as long as you can hold it still enough for long enough you, you could get um that sample that was actually in focus on the iphone if you get six inches away it was just blurry and scanning a blurry 1d barcode is actually a lot more difficult to solve the problem on if like if you're on just a regular computer you might use some blind deconvolutions to try and get past the blur, then run it through just a stock decoder. Mm-hmm. But these early smartphones didn't have enough comp- computational power to actually do that type of stuff. Certainly couldn't do it um, more than like you know multiple times per second like you need to do if you're trying to actually scan a barcode in uh, real time. So,
0: And that's essentially like running the blurry image through a sharpener, so to speak, to, right. to make the bar sharper, right? Okay. Right,
1: right. So to solve that problem, uh, I built something called Meatloaf.
0: Which is a great name.
1: <laughs> At the time, there was, a, there was a food theme to all the, the projects. Uh, everything
0: Was that alignment with Google, too? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> the, the other projects were uh, taquito and chalupa and quail. And so this one was Meatloaf. <laughs> but the way Meatloaf worked, though, is that it, it tried to actually solve the problem backwards. So instead of actually taking a blurry sample and sharpening it, which is computationally intensive. It would actually take fragments of known barcodes and then blur them, and then compare it piecewise to the sample for similarity. And turns out that that was actually um, uh, like a much faster way to do it. And uh, turn, it it took a while to get right. It was it was pretty challenging, but uh, it worked. Wow. And it was uh it it, it was. That was a, a second helpful thing in the early days. In addition to getting, you know, all the, the love from T-Mobile and, and, other manufacturers being one of the only apps that could scan a barcode on iPhone was also super, super helpful too. Sure. And, uh, so those two things together, um, was, it was like catching lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Um, and also, also Pat, beyond just having good graphics tech, we did have a, Really fantastic backend too. So after the barcode was decoded, um, our our price comparison search engine had wider coverage and fresher prices, and it was just more accurate than anything else out there.
0: So users loved us. It was it was great. Those were those were good times. Totally amazing. How, how did you come up with the uh, the reverse engineering idea for Meatloaf? Uh,
1: well, it was it was mostly I like to solve problems backwards.
0: Okay, let's yeah. dive into that. So you like to solve problems backwards, what does that, what does that look like for you?
1: I, I, had, I had a sneaky suspicion that um, doing something like that might be possible, and so I started doing some research and found out that there was actually someone else already doing using that approach. Uh, so um, at the time, Will Shipley uh, and Mike Matas was actually working for Delicious Monster, and they had a barcode scanner to actually add things to your library, like uh, either books or movies. And, uh, I'm not quite sure if that's the approach that they were using, but I think it was, Mm. um, found some info buried deep in forums that I think maybe that's what they were doing. Sure. But it was enough confirmation for me to give it a try and actually spend actually months trying to crack that problem. Right. And, uh, so I invested the time to, to make it work and thankfully it went
0: somewhere. Yay. That's incredible. As you were as you were building this, obviously you had to think through like, okay, I have limited technology, uh, or the technology is limited where it is right now, right? The phones, the cameras, the barcode scanners, or the really just the cameras and the the quality of yours. What other trade-offs did you have to make, and, and kind of how did you cope with those decisions in the short term? Being this grand visionary of the ideal tech state, how did you how did you process all that? Oh well, well
1: the, the interesting thing about uh, barcode scanning is that we we always thought that it would be commoditized eventually, so that sort of this this early mover advantage would uh, one day be gone. It just wouldn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, uh, even though we were we were able to solve that problem, we we never worked to make that our core. Mm. So what we did is we we did spend some time trying to. Um, and make that work for us as best as possible. Uh, it worked great for uh, acquiring customers mm-hmm. because it was a great product um, Other apps actually wanted to license our tech. So we were able to license meatloaf to um, Macy's uh, Sam's Club Price Grabber, CNET mm. and uh,
0: That was good. Yeah. So so it's basically a side revenue stream. Yeah. Based on your SDK that you built for Shop Savvy. Right. We didn't spend too
1: much time on those initiatives. We were trying to actually, we are trying to play the
0: consumer game. Sure. Go after the shoppers. Right. So so that's a great segue into how your product progressed after that. So where did you go next? So we had great traction in the beginning.
1: It, uh, It attracted some attention from investors, allowed us to build a team. And we uh, tried to uh, uh, take all that momentum and then level it up, take it to the next level. So we, at that point, we tried a whole bunch of experiments to try. um, And uh, I guess you could call them pivots because we technically had product market fit. We just figured that there was a ceiling to what we were doing right now. And there was a much bigger pie to go after. Sure. Uh, in the shopping space.
0: How did you determine the experiments to go through? What process did you go through that, for that?
1: I don't, I don't think it was all that organized of a process. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, this is a good idea. Let's think, try this. <laughs> I think it was a lot of just trying stuff out. Got it. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't even just one process. I mean, we tried to be organized about it. We tried to be disorganized about it. tried. I mean, we, 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 we ran a lot of experiments. We had a lot of time to try things out.
0: All while people were still using shop savvy and its core purpose, uh, that you felt there was a ceiling for at some point. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That part, that part was, um, both a blessing and a curse. Okay. I mean, it was a blessing in the sense that, uh, it, 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 it allowed us to try and level up to actually even, you know, you know, have a turn at bat, but also, you know, trying to come up with, come up with an entirely new premise without letting go to an original premise is like serving two masters. Sure. And so that was proving to be a, a, a real big challenge. Yeah. Um, it is, it is, it is, it is very hard to reinvent yourself. And education is the hardest part. Like educating your users. Sure. Is one of the hardest parts. Right. And, um, doing that while also alienating, um, your original user base. Right. Makes it double hard.
0: Right. So you ran these experiments that led to some pivots and then you went through the struggle of, okay, we're going to pivot. How did you go about that process and what did, what did feel like as far as the curse part?
1: Um, Well, you know, learned a lot in those years, Um, learned a lot about uh, team dynamics, learned a lot about building products, learned a lot about iterating, Mm -hmm. Uh, learned a lot about testing, talking to
0: users. I mm-hmm.
1: learned a lot about all that stuff.
0: Um, what was your biggest takeaway though? If you learned a lot, what was the number one thing you learned?
1: Well, One thing that can help through uh, a bunch of experimentation and a bunch of pivots mm-hmm. is having a strong core vision from the founders. Mm-hmm. Vision is not something that you can delegate or outsource mm-hmm. for sure. We even did some experiments around that. Where it's like, okay, so here's two guys running a shopping startup. Perhaps we can find some people that are experts in shopping. That, you know, they know the space or love the space more than we do. Because just to rewind a little bit, like it's, it's, it's a little bit of a happy accident that I started a shopping startup. I mean, my, what got me here was I was actually trying to solve a problem around graphics processing and the mobile space right that's those that was actually the you know the intersection of the two things i was interested in at the time and but it turns out you know the the best practical application of barcode scanning on a smartphone is price comparison which led to a shopping startup so
0: what you're saying is you don't like to shop
1: (laughs) i'm not a shopper
0: not a shopper i'm not a shopper okay
1: but uh but you can't you can't delegate vision and so, I mean, if, if you want a unified team and if you want cohesion, and if you want a, te- a team that, just, that trusts each other and that high functioning output, it, it does have to come from the founders mm-hmm. about, you know, this, these are our goals. You know, this is our purpose. You know, this is the problem that we're trying to solve. If, if you're going to do a lot of experimentation, uh, that, that is something that that is going to have to be led by the the founders.
0: So, do you feel like that you had that clear vision for execution for what you were trying to do? You and the other founders.
1: What I would say is that uh, we did a lot of experiments, and uh, the the ones that were better mm-hmm. were the were the were the ones where, where the team was all on the same page, got it, and all together and all, you know, this this cohesive unit. The time where the team performed the worst is 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 where there was a lack of direction and purpose. Due to delegation, for example,
0: got it, so Sorry, d-
1: due to delegating
0: the the vision the vision part yeah. of it right it needs to come from the top tell me tell me about how you built your team. How did you go about picking the people who were going to work for you essentially and build this vision
1: every 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 scrappy way that you can, I was this um twenty six year old moron it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to get people to follow you when you're a 26 year old moron. You know, I, 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 to that point, I will say, um, I, I've worked with some, a bunch of amazing people and, um, throughout my years, like, like dozens of amazing people. Like it's, it was every single person that actually joined, I was really just stunned that, that they did. Um, I, I mean, I guess the takeaway there is when people are deciding to, uh, to join, it's it's a very complicated equation. There's a there's a lot of things to consider. Sure. And uh, looking looking back on it, uh, you you can actually kind of see some of those variables um, take effect over the years. Mm-hmm. So I had I had lunch with a lot of my my old teammates today, and it's it's interesting seeing them hearing them talk about team dynamics mm-hmm. because uh, they they've moved on to other gigs.
0: So, so how, let me, let me, let me bring you back to the team then. How did you structure your team based on what you were going to build and how did you, how did you pick them? How did you say that person's going to be a winner? That's the winning horse.
1: Honestly, I don't think I was very good at picking people. Okay. Tell Uh, me about that. The interesting thing about me is I I think my, my radar was, uh, uh, quite broken in that department. Okay. Um, a lot of the people that I thought were going to be the biggest contributors and, you know, provide the most value ended up being quite the opposite. Mm. And also a lot of the people that I didn't think were going to make much of a difference ended up being just invaluable, invaluable resources. I I, can't, I hate calling them resources. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, one thing about team that I, that I had, I, learned the hard way is that, um, I put a lot of stock in volume. Okay. So So what what does that mean? I think people tend to value things that they tend to overvalue things that they are personally weak in. Okay. Like self-marketing, right? Like you're telling people how great you are. I'm terrible at that. (laughs) I I just sort of maybe isn't a, a thing of overcompensation, um people that do market themselves well, I've always seemed to sort of put a lot of stock in that. Mm. And, um, you know, I used to, when hiring people, when bringing people onto the team, I used to, uh, you pay a lot of attention to how much attention people got. Okay. I would, I would sort of use that as a signal for, um, you know, how talented they were. Sure. And, um, and, and, and again, that was rooted in, in my own, uh, weakness where I'm not good at that. And so I overvalue that.
0: Sure. So this could be positive or negative attention. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: positive or negative attention. Right. Uh, and, and I've, I've since done a complete reversal on that. Um, you know, uh, all, all the, the loud people I mean, people that they're very good at like promoting themselves. Yeah. Very good at uh, presenting how great they are. The people that I that I, I thought were obviously good picks because it was obvious, it was well-marketed. <laughs> Most of the time, the they were actually um, you know, outperformed by the people that were just quiet and heads down and just banging it out. You know, it was a hard lesson for me to learn. It's kind of, at this point, it's, it's almost a, a bit of a, uh, an anti- anti-pattern for myself. Okay. Where now when I see people that do a lot of self-promotion uh now i'm now i'm wondering if that is maybe compensating for something sure Uh, one thing to look for when when building your team is um just don't tolerate assholes it's it's far more trouble than it's worth it's not even close Mm -hmm. the uh, they they might be able to produce in isolated settings but if your goal is to build a, a team, uh, you need team players. The best team players that I have had, uh, the ones that have actually contributed to the team with a multiplier effect with their other teammates and had this amazing, amazing impact and long-lasting impact and uh, like loyal impact on the team, stuck around for years and produced just so much value uh, for such a long time. Or the people with their heads down, you know, just um, quietly and continuously creating awesome. When you, if you have people that are not team players on your team, it's it's not it's not just something that you can just put in a corner or or try to isolate from your team. Uh, it actually will take away from your team. It's it's a a negative impact on your team, not just. Not just a, a zero impact, or a, you know, sometimes positive, sometimes nothing impact. It's, it actually hurts the rest of your team.
0: Okay, so so where'd you go next? Um, you know, trying to find and reinvent, reinvent yourself and shop savvy.
1: Yeah, so it, it wasn't so much reinventing as it was to level up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a whole bunch of really great momentum, and we figured we could actually leverage that momentum to slingshot us and to uh this blasting place and the uh, mobile shopping space. Mm-hmm. And so we uh we uh did a whole bunch of experiments to try and uh you know capture that that
0: next lightning in a bottle so you were in Dallas you guys had an office in Dallas sometime at some point you expanded into San Francisco too, right?
1: That's true. Yeah. After we had raised our Series A, we opened up an office in San Francisco. We had an office just right across the street from the creamery. We the goal was to uh, attract that Silicon Valley talent. Sure. Yeah. How did how did that work out? <laughs> it worked out pretty well, honestly. It's a uh, it's it's so different out there. Um, it's great out there. I love it out there, honestly. Yeah. I I, I miss going there. I, I wish I could go more. Sure. It's my kind of place, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of good things to say about it. <laughs> That's you great. know, I mean, honestly, yeah, I don't think I have anything bad to say about it. It's I, it's it's a whole different world out there, but man, I love it all. Very different from Texas. <laughs> yeah, it's super different from Texas. The the mentality about things is is different. It's uh it's it's so fearless out there. And 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 I love that about it. People go and do stuff they just, they jump in with both feet and, and I don't see that a lot here. I see a lot more calculated moves. Not that I don't respect that. I do. There's a lot of, um, I think there's a higher average age out here. There's a, uh, you know, larger mortgages, more kids. Um, <laughs> sure. There's a lot more commitments perhaps. Yeah. But, um, there's just a lot more risk taking out there, which makes it, it's just a, a lot more fun it's uh fun to watch
0: obviously there was a step where you guys exited can you walk us through any of uh any of that story sure sure so we tried a lot of experiments
1: each experiment sort of resulted in things that didn't work you know you you take uh you sort of take the results and um try to uh leverage the parts that did work into the next thing and let go of the stuff that did not work. Uh, And we were on to some some pretty great stuff towards the end of our startup days. We had uh, just a fantastic product and pricing database. We had some machine learning efforts that were pretty unique at the time. Yeah, ahead of its time. And we had uh, some really great traction with users. So all that Together, actually, did get the attention of quite a few people. We we spent probably about ten months uh, talking to you know doing the roadshow, <laughs> and it eventually uh, boiled down to selling shop savvy. It was uh, about December of 2015. Yeah, it was. We ended up selling to a company called Perch. Uh, they were a digital publishing company. Uh, a lot of what they do, is they, they write reviews, for, uh, they do a lot of things, but one of the things they do is write reviews for products mm-hmm. and they, they get a lot of high intent traffic people that actually want to buy a very specific item and their whole, their whole business was revolved around decision enablement. Mm-hmm. And so they help these uh, potential customers make these buying decisions by uh, letting, by Trying to answer all their questions about the product upfront in these reviews, and they, you know, have links to send them out to retailers to actually buy it. Our backend technology with uh, the, our product database and the, the price comparison search engine was uh, a, a very excellent complement to the work that they were doing there, and so uh, that was one of the reasons they bought us. We were. Uh, the second reason was also uh, to kickstart their mobile efforts, since we had a giant user base on mobile. Sure. Um that was appealing to
0: actually um uh, get the ball rolling quickly. And giant user base is nearly fifty million downloads, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's the yeah. giant user base. Okay, I want to clarify that. It's big. You play the game long enough and uh you get fifty million downloads, is that <laughs> it? <laughs> it can happen. It can happen.
1: Um but uh, we, had been, uh, we had been running as a startup for seven years at that point, by the time we sold.
0: When you When you were building shop-savvy, maturing shop-savvy, so you had to solve different problems externally for your consumers and, and your pivots and your experiments, but also internally in figuring out how to do things better. Did you have any um, opportunities or projects that you worked on that ended up being their own sort of thing?
1: So there was at one point we were doubling down on design and to try and do some experimentation around having a top-notch user experience for the user and seeing how that reacts and how that actually uh, changes engagement. Our designers were actually creating just some really fantastic work. And it it ended up being a lot to keep up with from an engineering standpoint. Because we weren't just implementing these designs Inside the app, there's also millions of product images to actually account for. Because some of the designs actually called for tweaks to the the product images themselves, or maybe the users themselves. We did a lot of experiments around social shopping too. Some images need to, needed to actually be you know cropped into a circle. For mm-hmm. example, right. sounds pretty pretty basic, <laughs> but um, you know you, you do have to do that three times. You know the way you do it on iOS is one way. It's a different way on Android in a totally different way on the web. You know, sometimes there whether it be uh, something as simple as having this sort of this bottom fade gradient at the bottom of the, of the image so that you can overlay text on it in, in a way that's legible. Sure. Or or maybe knowing, all right, is this is the image that we're dealing with is it a full bleed image or where you have artwork that goes edge to edge. Like is co- that's common with books or movies. Or is it this sort of um, studio shot where everything surrounding the, the image is actually white? Little nuances like that can actually um, have major impacts to the way you design something. Certainly. Um, so we were doubling down on design and it was putting a strain on the engineers. And we had uh, we had this gap between the engineering team and the design team that was actually it was, it was a wide gap, and it was actually um, a lot of work to actually manage. You know, designers striving for pixel-perfect implementation, and engineering had more work than time. What I did was I actually kind of spent the, the next couple um, nights and weekends working on just some in, new experiment to try and shorten that gap between the two teams. Okay. And the project was called X-Image. And I I just built it as this open source project. It's still out on GitHub. (laughs) You can grab it if you want. (laughs) Um, But it was... um, At the time, it was pretty novel. And what it did is it it was actually uh, real-time image transformations. What it would do... It it ended up actually giving a lot more control to the design team uh, and the final outcome of the designs. And so... If they if they had some requirements coming down the pipe, you know, hey, we want to actually load this really lightweight version of the image first, so that um, you're not looking at like a blank screen. You actually have this. It's it'll be blurry, but it'll be you know a tenth the size of the other image, and mm. we can download them both at the same time, and we can have something to show early before the high resolution one comes in. Right. Um, things like that. They could just take care of that mm. by putting parameters on the query string. And uh these parameters could be anything from the the image quality or certain effects like applying a blur or making it grayscale or cropping it to a circle or even overlaying layers on top of layers. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to actually you know crop it in a circle, apply a white stroke on the outside and have a drop shadow beneath it, right? You only do that once. And it's the same query string and it looks exactly the same, pixel perfect, on all three platforms, web, ios and android so
0: everybody loved it it was great and so that and was all handled through ximage yeah yeah you've you've uh, had a, a long run in the tech space you've had an exit you've had side projects you know what what is next for you what what are you hoping for in the future
1: yeah uh, uh my life is filled with these um these fun ironies uh <laughs> of like you know what I, what I should have done and what I ended up doing. And um, some of the stuff I'll be working on next is, is, is a remedy to that. So I love the open source space and yet I have never ever actually contributed to it. I've always just been watching it from afar from what, from whatever I'm working on. You know, either I was employed by some company that just everything they do is proprietary or it just didn't really have a place in, in the startup that I was running, um, but I've always loved the open source space. Uh, I want to actually, you know, do something there.
0: What was the first programming language you've learned? Uh, Logo Writer. Ah, boy. Logo Writer.
1: Logo Writer, what year was that? It was, I think it was still the 80s. And um, for those of you that don't know Logo Writer, it's it's an educational language to teach kids how to how to code and you make a turtle move around the screen and and draw stuff right and, it, and if you're really clever you can actually do fancy stuff with sprites and maybe make a game and stuff like that uh things got really interesting when uh i discovered you can actually plug your legos into the computer and drive interactions using logo writer mm, nice <laughs> so uh, it turned into a sort of
0: robotics thing where you can actually build stuff and make it react and do stuff that's where it all started okay so what what about an architect or a cto or a tech person you look to or you look up to
1: uh honestly uh i've i've loved watching miguel de casa all these years okay so he's he's a big name in the open source crowd okay i, I love the stuff he's built gnome for example is is one of them and but I, but I also I mean he, he just he just keeps it so real he 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 he, uh, he just follows what's good he doesn't pay attention to he doesn't pay attention to stuff that doesn't matter you know he 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 has a, 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 an excellent sense of actually judging things based on their merit mm. and not their marketing and and he's right every time honestly. <laughs> I love it. I just, I just love it. Um, he's also, so he is one of the big names in Mono. Mm. So okay, so his, his past is so very eclectic and that's one of the things I love about him. So he, he, he comes from the world of Linux. Uh, he's always been in the world of open source. He ad- adopted C Sharp, uh, a long time ago in, uh, in, in the name of Mono. And making .NET run everywhere. Essentially, yeah. he currently works for Microsoft, <laughs> which historically has been openly hostile to open source. Sure. Um, he loves iPhones, <laughs> which is, you know, if it's not the open source version of the smartphone world, for, so to speak. Um, you know, I, I he's he's just he's just so talented, and he he just always judges things based on their merit and um like just an honest assessment of that an honest um unadulterated f- filter on like no no this is this is good um because i say so and even though everybody's telling me otherwise and and i've <laughs> over the past 10 years i've always just agreed with i've always just agreed with the direction that he's been going i've always just thought that if you could go back to the beginning what would you do different that's a good question you know, one of the best things you can do is actually um, find a good mentor. A good mentor will help you avoid so many mistakes. Mm. Probably because they made the mistakes themselves already before you. Sure. just It's a great time saver. Yeah, if I had to do it all over again, I would actually find uh, a good mentor on day one. This is one of the, the blessings in disguise that... I had is that I actually thought I had found a mentor. It turns out that I was wrong about that, mm. but, um, but that person actually introduced me to someone else ah. who actually, uh, sort of accidentally became my mentor. Um, and, uh, so I'm very grateful for that. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's
1: a good network of network. Yeah, I mean. And, um, yeah. And it's, and, yeah, I, I owe this person everything they, they, they've they just taught me so much and have helped me so much and um, I, I just I couldn't be more grateful
0: I, I owe them everything what lessons have you learned that you will apply to future projects one is the, the value of having a good team
1: and and two is also what those teammates are actually looking for mm-hmm. you know building a good good team isn't, it's not just something that happens by luck, you know, that good teammates stick around for reasons. If you know what they are, you can build a good team. And so it, it, a lot of it has to do with building trust. Um, A lot of it has to do with uh, like Daniel Pink's AMP model. Mm -hmm. Um, Autonomy, mastery, purpose. And if, you know, if you can actually create that environment um, the rest will follow awesome
0: Rylan it has been a pleasure to have you on the Code Story podcast thank you for being here thanks, thanks man for... I hope I didn't mess up your podcast yeah. <laughs> I'm keeping that in <laughs> <laughs> and this concludes another chapter of Code Story Code Story is a production of TouchTap Tap LLC and is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart Co-produced and edited by George Macharco. Special thanks to Deanna Chapman and Stephanie Campisi for their promotional support. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Breaker, or the podcasting app of your choice. Make sure to check us out at Codestory.co or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn.